Well, it's long weekend. A lot of people are away, including half of the core team, which they're going to get a discussion about. No, I'm teasing. <laughs> um, but it's so good. Thank you. Just, uh, I really love times like this where we value getting into the presence of the Lord. And um, I just know that God's doing something so profound in Johannesburg. Um, being in, in Cape Town and just talking to different leaders and pastors, there's something stirring about Joburg. And um, thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, in fact, one of the guest speakers that was at this event, he said something interesting to me. He said, I really think what happens to Joburg happens to South Africa. And I thought, huh, interesting. Most people would say that about Cape Town. But he said, no, because Johannesburg is the economic capital of the nation, it carries that, that, that weight and that ability to bring shift, cultural shift, economic shift and transformation uh, to our country. And so he just said, man, you are placed strategically in a city. And if we as a church, I really believe this, the, the prophetic word that came over 24-7 while I was there was that God has made 24-7 not just a church for the nations, but a church for the city. And we're carrying a, we're carrying a, a, a weight and a, a stirring in our hearts for the nations, unreached regions, and we'll continue to say yes to that. But I also believe that the Lord has given us an apostolic mandate, and maybe that word sounds like Christianese, I'll explain it, but um, that we're carrying a mandate for our city, to see our city touched, changed, and transformed by the kingdom of heaven. And that doesn't mean looking for a better day in Joburg. It means seeing the gospel bring salvation and transformation to every heart. And so we want to see the city of Johannesburg change and transform. Amen. So that's exciting. Um, can I encourage us with something that I just felt now in the worship? Um, when we're in the throne room of heaven and we're singing songs like this, and like, don't worry, we're all in that place when, when, the, when the whole team is singing three different things and we don't know which one to join in with. We're all there. Don't worry. Like, get used to it. The throne room's like that. There's a lot of songs. You know, one singing holy, one singing hallelujah, one singing the dwelling place, and you're just like, it's wild, right? But as long as your heart's engaged, it's beautiful. So don't worry if you were in that place and like, I don't actually know which one to sing. We're all there. But... We're going to hear many songs, many sounds released in the throne room of heaven. But can I just encourage you that you won't be singing blessing and honor from a place of strain. You won't be singing blessing and honor, help Jesus, help somebody tell him he's worthy. It's not going to be like that. And it's not, there's a, there's a beauty in the de declaring the wonders of God. And so I believe in that wild, abandoned release of praise, which we were seeing this morning. But I want to encourage you, it's not a strain. It's getting wrapped up in the wonder of Jesus. See, something happens when we begin to see Him. The reason why it can look like this wild, crazy declaration is because we're getting so taken by the beauty and the wonder of Jesus that it's like everything in my being wants to scream and declare and, and, and decree who Jesus is because I see Him. The only reason why we often don't want to do that is because we stop looking at Him. There's something about the throne room of heaven where we get completely taken by who Jesus is. There's this shout. There's this song. There's this explosion of praise and adoration that begins to stir in your heart. Amen? You with me? Maybe it's just me. That's okay. Um, but I promise you when you see Jesus, I just, I know, like I know, like I know, when you see Him, it, there is a demand of a response in your heart because you were born for Him. There's this, this stirring in your heart. You can't get away from it. It's like you see Him and everything in you wants to respond. Um, I'm carrying this message in my, in my heart. Um, I've been sitting in two passages of Scripture because we've been going through a, a preacher's conference and both passages are stirring in my heart right now and I'm like, oof, which one? Um, so let's do both. Um, just, I want to touch on something because I think it'll maybe open our hearts to receive the weighty thing that I feel the Lord's got for us today. Um, in Luke chapter 19, we see the story of Zacchaeus. Um, and I'm just in the worship, just getting stirred by this way. You know, Zacchaeus is the chief tax collector. Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, Zac, right? Whatever you want to call him. Zacchae. Um, he's the chief tax collector. So he's not just the tax collector. He's the chief tax collector, right? He's the chief of the crooks. Okay? And he has a reputation. In fact, it says in, in the Amplified, um, it describes him as a notorious sinner. So here's Zacchaeus, the notorious sinner, chief tax collector, the superintendent. And uh, people hate him. People are upset with him. Nobody likes him because he's become rich off of taking advantage of, of people. He's the guy that makes us angry. He's the corrupt politician. 
He's the president we didn't want. He's the person you complain about, whine about, taking our money, right? Just giving us some perspective. And he hears that Jesus is going to be passing through Jericho. And so Jesus is coming through the town, and he, I love the way it describes it. It says, and Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus. He just wanted to see him, right? And so he comes, he's a short man, and he comes and he can't see Jesus over the crowd, so he looks for a tree, climbs up the tree so that he can just see this man. Because the stories that are being told is that this man, Jesus, changes hearts and lives. So here's this guy who's, you know, made money, but he's, he's empty and he's broken and he's aware of what people think of him and guarantee you what he thinks of himself is worse than what people have said. And he's living in this turmoil. And he hears that that man who they're telling the stories, he changes hearts and lives. He's passing through my town. So he runs, he finds the tree, he gets up this tree. And it's interesting, it's a sycamore tree. And if you study that, it actually, sycamore tree, it represents transformation and regeneration. And so how's this? Here's this, the notorious sinner who simply says yes to one thing. I'm going to pursue seeing Jesus. I want to see who Jesus is. And in that shift of his heart, in the act of faith to do something, to position himself to see Jesus, he finds himself positioned for transformation and regeneration. And this is what I love about Jesus. Jesus is walking down the street. There's crowds of people. And then he sees this guy positioned differently to everybody else in a tree. Are you getting this? He's, in, he's positioned for transformation and regeneration because his pursuit was, I just need to see Jesus. Jesus looks at him, and this, I love this about the Lord. He says, Zacchaeus, calls him by name. And then he says something interesting. He goes, I want to stay at your house today. Here's the response of Jesus to the notorious sinner with the sinful heart. I want to stay. Do you get this? Jesus looks at your life and before any change, before any transformation, before any shift or whatever circumstance, situation, repentance, before any of it, he looks at you and goes, hey, Zacchaeus, or whatever your name is, I want to stay. And Zacchaeus says that he welcomed Jesus and rejoiced. This is the gospel. I don't know if you're seeing the gospel just being preached to you right now. God looks at man in the most sinful, most broken, while we were still dead. While we were still dead in our trespasses, Christ died for us. This is the gospel. He looks at Zacchaeus and goes, before anything has even changed, I just want you to know I want to stay. I want to stay at your house. I want to stay by you. And Zacchaeus rejoices and welcomes him. And then suddenly Zacchaeus has Jesus in the house and something is happening in his heart. With Jesus in his house, he begins to say, Lord, I'm going to give away half my possessions. And for everyone that I cheated, I'm going to give four times as much back. Zacchaeus is now broke. <laughs> you get this? Yep. Think about that. Half my possessions, and then everyone I cheated, which is probably a lot of people, four times as much as I took from them, I'll give back. I don't know if he had any money left after that. Gospel. Oof. I won't go down there. Um, so what I want to say is this. This is how grace confronts the notorious sinner. He didn't come to Zacchaeus and go, Hey, Zacchaeus, come down. Let's have a chat. Buddy, you know, everyone knows who you are. You know who you are. Let's make some changes here, bud. If you make those changes, maybe I can spend some time with you because I don't know if I can be associated with someone like you. We've got to ask the question, for so many of us, this is what I love about Zacchaeus. Jesus says, I want to stay at your house. And he goes, yay. He didn't go, Jesus, no, hold on, my house is a mess. And that's actually where I stash all the cash that I've stolen from everyone, right? Like, you're going to see all of my stuff, my junk, my mess. He didn't say that. He just said, oh, my word, thank you, Jesus. He rejoiced and welcomed him. Come to my messy house. Come to the sinner's house. Come to this. If you want to be there, you can be here. This is, I open my life to you. Come. And because Jesus is in his house, everyone else is beginning to mutter and, and murmur, and they're going like, why would he go and stay with a notorious sinner? This is our Jesus. This is the gospel. Jesus wants to stay. He wants to dwell. 
And there's this, this change, and it says at the end that Jesus speaks to them. He says, I've come to seek and save the lost. Right? So if you can position your heart this morning in that place and just go, I don't know what you're facing, what you're, you're dealing with, where your heart's at right now, but I'm telling you that's the Jesus we serve. The one who comes and goes, I want to call you by name. You're in this pursuit to see me rightly. I want to call you by name and just say, I'm here to stay. I want to stay with you. Will you let me in? Just, just welcome me into your house. I'll do the rest. Something happened to Zacchaeus over lunch with Jesus that caused that transformation and shift to happen in his heart where he rectified the things that had happened. It wasn't out of this pressure to be better. It was out of receiving the love of Jesus in a place of brokenness. You getting this? Well, amen to that. If you got your Bibles, will you turn to 1 Kings chapter 19? I have just come off of a big mountain, so I decided we'll talk about it. Before I get into the, the message, I just want to be obedient to this. I really feel that God has positioned 24-7 as a community that's going to preach and communicate and demonstrate the story of God well to our city. In every single, let me say it like this, in every single story that we read in the Old Testament and into the New, it's almost like God is telling the same story through different people. Get this? He's telling the same story through different characters, different stories. It's like you look at it and you go, wow, I see the same common thread of redemption, grace, forgiveness, mercy, substitutionary sacrifice. You can't do it on your own. You need Jesus again and again and again. And it's like through all of the generations, God has been prophesying to man, this is my heart. This is my story. This is my dream. You get this? And so... I believe that God is positioning 24-7 to carry the story of God, to carry the dream of God, that God wants us to be a catalytic movement awakening the dream of God in people, in cities, and in regions. You get this? And if you go, what is that? What's the story of God? What's the dream of God? You need to get plugged into community so that you can begin to understand His heart. We need to know the story of God. We need to know the dream of God. And in everything that we do and in everything that we preach and everything that we communicate, that story needs to come through. That's the story you're born for. It's the story of redemption. It's the story of salvation. It's the story of intimacy and an eternal relationship with a living God. This is why you're alive. Nothing else matters. Nothing even comes close in comparison to this story. And it's not just a story of, or a fairy tale. This is the story of the living God. This is the testimony of Jesus. It's why the prophetic needs to be so wrapped up in this. The prophetic outside of the story of God, it's missing the substance of who God is. It won't build anything. It, more, it actually won't even bless. And so I want to just say, I really believe while I was in the mountains and the, the conference was called Preachers and the whole thing was a workshop around how to, how to go after being anointed preachers, communicating the gospel well. And I began to, while I'm sitting in the mountains, I began to think of you guys. I began to picture your faces and I'm thinking of different people. I'm going, oh my word, God has actually anointed the people that I lead to be preachers of the gospel in every sphere of influence. And God wants to anoint and appoint you in that destiny that whatever it is that you do, God's called you to be someone who proclaims and demonstrates the gospel. You get that? Now, that, that's so basic. I know that's like, yeah, Gospel 101. But do you, do you believe that about what you carry? Do you believe you are that, right? And so I want to just do something real quick. Um, if you know in your heart, and, and I'm going to first pray over everybody because you're all getting this thing, right? This, the anointing to, to preach, communicate the gospel in, in what you're called to do. But I know this morning there are people here who in their heart have felt called to preach the gospel, meaning Maybe it's in business, maybe it's in different spheres, maybe it's from the pulpit, maybe it's whatever it is. But you know, you've had this burning in your heart that I know I'm called to communicate the gospel. If that's you this morning, and again, I'm going to pray over everybody so you're going to get this no matter what. But I know who I'm talking to. I'm talking to hearts that are like, yep, that, the moment you say it, that lit up inside of me. If that's you, I'm going to ask you to stand and I want to quickly, real quick, just prophesy and pray over you guys. So if you're feeling that burning in your heart, will you stand with me? Awesome.
Thank you, Jesus. All right. Um, can we stretch our hands out to these guys? And we're going to pray, and then we're going to pray over all of us. Holy Spirit, I thank you for these that are standing that have felt the call to, to articulate and communicate with clarity the gospel. Preachers of the gospel. Holy Spirit, thank you right now for an impartation of whatever you've done over these last few days. God, I release a boldness, a strength, and a confidence over every single one of them right now. Holy Spirit, thank you that, they, that right now you're stirring up a desire in our hearts to encounter a message worth crafting so that we can craft messages worth encountering. Would you do that in us right now? We receive an impartation of not just good communication, but God, the power of the gospel expressed through every single one of us in every sphere of influence. And God, I want to pray over the whole house right now. And I just want to say, even those who never thought of themselves as preachers of the gospel, right now I release grace and anointing over this room to carry the fire of the gospel to communicate in Jesus' name. So I bless this house and I release an impartation and great grace to be preachers of the gospel, demonstrators of the kingdom of God right now in Jesus' name. We receive that Holy Spirit by faith. We take a hold of it and I thank you for fresh fire and fresh zeal in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I just felt to do that as a release because I know that I really was stirred in this while I was away um, and so I'm excited that God's doing that in this house. Amen. Okay, uh, 1 Kings chapter 19 is an interesting story, and I'm going to do my best. There's so much in this. We've been in this for two days. There's so many things stirring in my heart, um, and so we're just going to pull out a few things, and let me just say this. I'm going to preach a chapter of the Bible, and there's going to be different things that land for different people. You get that? So right now, there might be certain things I say that you go, yeah, okay, that, that's good, it's, Maybe it doesn't land the same way. And then the next thing you hear it and it goes, whoa, that's, my, that's for my heart right now. So God's going to release a bunch of things through this chapter. And different things will land differently for your heart. Take it. Take a hold of it. Take it by faith. So that, that one was for me. Thank you, Jesus. Amen? Okay. So I want to give some context before we jump into this. How many of you know who Elijah is? Is there anyone in the room who doesn't know who Elijah is? That's okay. You can be honest if you don't know. Uh, it took me a while to figure out because I get confused with Elijah and Elisha. Elijah. Cool. Everyone knows. There's liars here, but it's okay. Um, I'm teasing. So Elijah's this prophet. He's a prophet of God in the nation of Israel. And, uh, and this guy is intense. We've just had a, in, in chapter 18, we experienced something really wild. Elijah's the guy who confronts the prophets of Baal or Baal. And uh, this is intense. They're on a mountain. And there's this thing of like, well, let's see if your God's real. I'm going to prove that my God's real. And so it's like, we're going to call down fire on a sacrifice. They do their thing. They're cutting themselves, the prophets of Baal. They're doing weird, demonic, ugly rituals, trying to call down fire on their sacrifice. Nothing happens. And Elijah is cheeky. Elijah is like, he's mocking them, going like, come on, you know, why don't you do a rain dance, buddy? Like, let's see, stir it up, see if anything happens. And he's like, he's met, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but uh, he's, he's really being cheeky with these guys. And then he comes on, he's like, you know, hey, actually pour water over that thing, you know, make sure that it's like, there's no possible way that fire could actually come. Do that. And then he prays and the fire from heaven falls on the sacrifice, right? And the fear of God hits them and then it gets really intense. He slaughters like 450 prophets of Baal. Okay, so can you just picture that? Can you picture you got a sword and now you're going to execute 400 false prophets? A lot of blood, pretty gory. I'm already starting to feel nauseous, right? Just, ah. I'm picturing Braveheart, you know, blood everywhere, just like, ah, freedom. I actually kind of like that movie, so. But just picture this for a second, just blood and, and death. Now, as a result of the fire of God. Okay. So Elijah has just experienced something. He's just been obedient to God. He's called down the fire of heaven, a demonstration of the kingdom, the government of God. And then he slaughters all these false prophets. And then Ahab takes this word back to Jezebel. Ahab is the king at the time. Jezebel is his wife. Some of you might already be shaking in your boots hearing Jezebel. Ooh. She's actually quite weak. Um, and so she... Sorry. <laughs> That's the spirit of Elijah. I mean, I'm feeling cheeky. Sorry. Um, and so she actually gets upset. Now, this is what's interesting. She gets really upset. Ahab is this enabler of a demonic spirit. 
And Jezebel gets upset. And so what she says is she sends word to Elijah. And she says, what you did to the, to the prophets of Baal, I'm going to do to you and worse. She's like, I'm, I'm going to slaughter you. I'm coming for you. Now, just picture this for a second. Elijah just saw the fire of God fall on a mountain and consume an offering when he prayed. And then slaughtered 450 prophets. And then one woman says, I'm going to do that to you. And he's absolutely terrified. Interesting. He's so afraid, if you read from uh, verse 3, And when he saw that, he rose and ran for his life, and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. So he, he hears this word. He's terrified. Jezebel's coming for him. Right after he just executed 450 prophets and saw the fire of God fall from heaven, but fear hits his heart, and he runs for his life. Fear. Anyone ever felt that kind of fear? He feels it, and he runs. And then, it's interesting, because of this fear, this demonic fear that's come on him, he runs to Beersheba outside of the kingdom, and then he leaves his servant there. And now listen to what happens. Let's carry on reading. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a broom tree or a juniper tree. And he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Okay, I want to describe something to you. Elijah, walking in the mandate as a prophet, the mantle of a prophet. He begins to be obedient to the Lord. Fire comes down. God honors the word of the Lord that Elijah released. He executes 450 prophets. So he's operating in the governmental role that he's called to as a prophet of God. Operating in his gifting, operating in his mantle. He begins to see this happen. Jezebel speaks. Fear hits his heart. He runs away, leaves his servant, someone who's supposed to be his companion, someone who's there to actually stand with him, isolates himself from his servant, goes into the wilderness, a day's journey into the wilderness, and cries out to God and has an identity crisis. He goes, kill me. I'm suicidal. I don't want to do this anymore. Take my life because I'm no better than my father's. Isn't this interesting? Elijah's going, I'm no better than my father's before me. I'm just like my father's. He's having an identity crisis. Can you see this? Je the fear that Jezebel put on him, this demonic fear, he's taken a hold of this. He's run, isolated himself when he should have pressed into a friend who could have stood with him. He actually isolates himself, goes into the wilderness, and suddenly he's suicidal and he's having an identity crisis. Just think about this for a second. I'm just provoking, okay? What does I'm no better than my father's have to do with what Jezebel has threatened him with? What's happening in, in, inside of Elijah right now? There's this internal crisis going on. He's tired, and what happens is there's this negativity that's come over him, and now the lenses with which he's seeing God and the lenses with which he's seeing what God is doing has shifted based on how he feels. Now he thinks he's alone. Now he thinks everything has failed, nothing's working, God's not doing what he said he was going to do. But like two days before, he was literally calling fire down from heaven. Can you see what the spirit of fear does to a human heart? Then as he lay and slept under the broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. Now, we've just been trained in this. I love this. Like, we had a bunch of preachers in the room, and we're going through this text, and they're like, okay, surface level, let's, let's ask some questions. Where the heck did the jar come from? The jar of water. Like, did the angel steal a jar of water from somebody else and bring it? Is it a heavenly jar of water? Like, who made the bread? Did the angel make the bread? Did he fetch the bread from somewhere? These are good questions to ask, right? It's very real. Like, the Bible, the Bible understates a lot, right? Can you imagine... I'm suicidal, so I take a nap under a tree, and an angel kicks me and says, wake up and eat, and next to me is perfectly baked bread and some water. Okay, maybe it's just me that thought that was crazy, but I would be like, where did this come from? But Elijah is so, he's so familiar with the supernatural that this has become so normal to him. So he ate and drank, and then he goes back to sleep. See what I mean? Like, angel kicked me, wake me up, Here's some bread and water. Uh, thanks, man. And go back to sleep. So the angel wakes him up a second time. Verse 7. Touched him and said, Arise and eat because the journey is too great for you. Interesting. Where's Elijah going? No one knows. God knows. Angel knows. 
Angel knows where he's going. Elijah's just suicidal and depressed in the wilderness. But the angel kicks him and goes, hey, finish the bread and water, buddy. The journey's too great for you. Interesting. So he rose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. Same place as Mount Sinai, okay? Now, I don't know. These are questions we've got to ask and wrestle with. Did Elijah know he was going to Horeb or Mount Sinai? Did he know or was he just in the wilderness depressed and God was just leading him and he's just suicidal and he finds himself on the mountain of God? Question, okay? Something to think about. The angel knows where he's going and goes, hey, you got a 40-day journey. I'm going to give you food. Now, we had this discussion. I love this, wrestling with it. These are just things that make me excited. I'm learning more and more. I'm becoming more of a Bible nerd. I like stuff like this. Like, was it spiritual food or was it just bread and water? Because immediately we go like, it must have been like the holy manna from heaven, you know? And maybe it was. But maybe it was just bread. And maybe Elijah's act of faith to just get up and eat, his act of faith brought him into the realm of God that sustained him for 40 days. We don't know. But it's interesting. It's like the angel knew where he was going. God knew where Elijah was going. Elijah had no idea. He was just suicidal and depressed. But God's actually faithful in the wilderness, in identity crisis, in a mess, to work on Elijah's heart. And so he journeys 40 days, 40 nights, and he ends up on the mountain of God. Maybe he was going there, maybe he wasn't. That's where he ends up, on the mountain. Now, this mountain is not just any mountain. This is the same mountain that Moses encountered the Lord on. This is the mountain where Moses stood and the Lord passed by and revealed himself to Moses. This is the place where God spoke to Moses face to face as a friend. This is... This is this is the place where Moses went up into the glory of God and came out with the law. This is not just any mountain. I mean, we're talking about the Shekinah glory of God manifest on this mountain. And Elijah is depressed, suicidal, and finds himself there. I think God sabotaged Elijah. I think Elijah was just so like fed up and he didn't even know what he was doing. He was just kicking dust and like, 40 days, 40 nights, angel kicked me in the stomach. What's going on with that? Like, what? He's just having this whole identity thing and he doesn't even realize that in the midst of his pain, God's saying, come to the mountain. You get this? In the midst of his difficulty, the Lord's saying, I'm, I'm drawing you. I'm actually in the wilderness season. I'm bringing you to the mountain with me. Then we get to the mountain and it says this, he went into a cave. Now, here's where I'm going to really lean in. <laughs> he went into a cave on the mountain and he spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? <laughs> Isn't this interesting? I'm sorry, the angel just said, <laughs> the angel just said to him, you need to eat this because your journey is too great for you, 40 days, 40 nights to where you got to go. And then, so obviously, like, the Lord must have known where he was taking him. And then the Lord's asking this question, what are you doing here? What are you doing on my mountain, buddy? Why is God asking Elijah, what are you doing? I don't think he's confused. I think he's asking Elijah, what are you doing here? And he finds himself in a cave. Now, can I just say this? Elijah is troubled. He's afraid. He's in the dark night of the soul. And sometimes we find ourselves in the dark night of the soul where all we can see around us is wilderness, and we don't even realize that in our wilderness season, we find ourselves on the mountain of God. And we're in the, the cave, the dark night of the soul, sitting in this cave, and the word of the Lord comes. He says, what are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Here's the response of Elijah. He's like, Lord, your dream failed. It's like Israel's failed. I don't know what, what you see here because it's just not working. It's, I'm tired of this. I'm done with it. The whole thing's failed. They torn down your altars. And then it's so interesting. He just slaughtered 450 prophets of Baal, but he goes like they've killed all your prophets with a sword. I'm like one prophet of God just killed 450, but Elijah's perspective has been so influenced by the spirit of fear that he's going, God, they killed all your prophets. It's only me. I'm the only one left. It's just me. Woe is me. And let me tell you, I was so encouraged because, you know, in ministry, you journey some stuff. So then you go spend two days with 68 other people in ministry, and then you hear their stories, and you're like, oh, there's 7,000 others. 
Like they actually all have, they're sitting there going like, man, how do you handle this? I'm like, you have that too? Ah, oh, this is why. And suddenly you're talking through stuff and going like, wow, actually there's a whole army of people out there. But anyway, we'll get to that. So here's Elijah's response. Then he said, go out and stand. This is the Lord speaking to Elijah. Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. Now just think about these things. God is already speaking to Elijah in the cave. And then he's telling Elijah in the cave, I want you to go out and stand before me on the mountain. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice or a whisper. Some translations say a gentle breeze. So it was when Elijah heard the sound that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. So here's what I want to show you. Elijah's on the mountain of God. God's speaking to Elijah in the cave, in his depression, in his fear, in his brokenness. And then he says, come out and stand before me. And Elijah doesn't. Get it? Because he only came out when he heard the breeze. So he doesn't. He's, he's despondent. He's going, I've seen your fire, God. I don't know if I want to be out there. Last time it made me kill 450 prophets of Baal. I'm tired of the assignment. I'm tired. I've labored hard. I'm depressed. You left me alone, God. He's disappointed in God. He's angry. He's upset. It didn't turn out the way he thought it was going to turn out. And he's on the mountain of God. And earthquake, wind, and fire is happening outside while the Lord passes by. Now here's what's so interesting. It says the Lord passed by. Suddenly there's the manifestation of fire, earthquake, wind tearing through the mountain, but God's not in it, but it's Him. Think about this for a second. It's the Lord passing by, but He's not in the wind, He's not in the fire, and He's not in the earthquake. And then there's a whisper. In fact, the actual word is there's silence. Now let me ask you this question. What does a troubled soul respond to? What does a soul that's been wrapped up in fear, that's been locked down by depression and anxiety and all these things, what does it respond to? Something happened in Elijah's heart where he's sitting in the dark night of the soul on the mountain of God. He hears the, the fire, the wind, the earthquake. It's happening. God is passing by and then suddenly stillness. And something about stillness awakens Elijah's heart to respond. And still, Elijah, when he hears that, he wraps his face. I find this very interesting. He wraps his face in his mantle or his cloak. God didn't tell him to do that. I think there's something prophetic in that. I think when we are burnt out, tired, when depression, fear, anxiety has hit our heart, disappointment has hit our heart, when we're in the dark night of the soul, I think our response to God often is to put our mantle or what we think we carry between us and God when He's called us to stand face to face with Him. We make our lenses based on what He's called me to do rather than just being a son or daughter in the presence of God. That one was for free. You should go home and lean into that. He stands at the entrance and suddenly a voice came and said, I love this so much. God, in the cave, he goes, what are you doing, Elijah? And then he says, come stand before me. And he does all this stuff. Fire, wind, earthquake, whisper. Elijah finally responds. He comes out. And the voice of the Lord comes. Guess what the Lord says? What are you doing here, Elijah? I'm like, what was the whole process? Like, we just went through this whole thing. And he just asked the same question. And guess what's wild? Elijah responds exactly the same way. He says, I've been very zealous for you, Lord. Because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant torn down your altars and killed your prophets with a sword. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. And then the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. This is nuts. God's like, okay, back you go into the wilderness. God's answer, back into the wilderness. And when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king of Assyria, anoint Jehu the son of Nimshi as king of Israel, and Elisha, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. Okay. I want to just pull out a couple things here. Elijah has allowed fear to shut him down. He's found himself in the cave on the mountain of God, 
God is moving in power and glory in front of him, and he's become so familiar with the supernatural that only the whisper of God, only the silence, the stillness of God awakens his soul to respond, but he is so despondent by the voice of Jezebel that he can't even answer or respond properly to what God is calling him to in that moment. Elijah's ministry is over, but his legacy is just beginning, and he can't make the, the transition. He says something in the beginning. He goes, I'm no better than my father's. And we see a belief system in Elijah's heart that's crushing him right now. And now God's saying, hey, your, your, your assignment in this ministry expression has come to an end, but now I'm asking you to step into the time of legacy. My roommate, this crazy prophet guy from Reading, he said something to me at like 3 o'clock in the morning. It was really wild. He said, there's three seasons in your life. Discovery, where you discover who you are, what God's called you to do. Building, where you build and, and where you begin to establish what God wants to do through you. And then third season, legacy, where you give it all away. He says, and then when you give it all away, he said, that's the most fruitful season of your life. He says, because that's where what you built, what you discovered and what you built now carries purpose. Because you're able to give it all away and see sons and daughters carry it even further. And then he says, once you give it all away, guess what happens? You go back to discovery. You begin to discover what the next, and then you begin to build, and then you begin to leave legacy. And this is what we do. And so here's Elijah. He's actually given instruction by the Lord for the sake of legacy. And he's given three instructions, and he only does one. This is a lesson that we can learn from Elijah. There's a couple of things stirring in my heart, and I'm asking the Lord just which ones to lean into. But sometimes we find ourselves locked down in a cave where we're tired, despondent, discouraged. And the stillness of God is drawing us. The stillness of God is wooing us. He's saying, come out of the cave. I want to speak to you. What are you doing here? It's not the end. It's the beginning of something new. And he calls him out. And Elijah wraps his face in his mantle. And I honestly believe that sometimes being attached to what we've carried in past seasons stops us from seeing what God's asking us to step into in this present moment. Can I tell you something interesting about inheritance? Biblically speaking, inheritance is not something you get when your father dies. Inheritance is something your father gives you when he's come to a place where he trusts you to carry it. It's a father's joy to see his children walk in the inheritance of what he paid for. This is why the father takes great delight in us walking in our inheritance which comes through Christ. He, he wants to watch us, collaborate with us, Support, champion us as sons and daughters walking in our inheritance in the kingdom. But we have this mentality, specifically in the West, that inheritance happens when I die, my child inherits something. And what we've done is we've robbed the inheritance of fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, seeing the evidence of what they've lived their lives for together. And so Elijah has this opportunity to step into an, a different season, the end of his ministry, but the beginning of his legacy. He's given these three instructions. Anoint these two kings, appoint these two kings, and, and, and a prophet in your place. And the only one that he can do is he anoints Elisha. He doesn't do the other two. And this is what's really interesting. If you carry on in verse 19, it says, So he departed from there and found Elisha, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he was with the 12th. Then Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle on Elisha. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I'll follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what, I, what have I done to you? Elijah is so wrapped up in this thing, man. He is so. Can you see how he is shut down? Elijah is like, he's put the mantle on Elisha, and he's like, oh, I don't even know if I want to do this because I know what this mantle, the weight of this mantle is. And, and he's like, 
Elisha says to him, can I just go back and say goodbye to my, my, my dad and my mom, and I'm, I'm ready. I'm going to leave everything behind. I'm going to follow you. And Elijah is like, what have I done to you, man? Yeah, sure, go do that. Like, I, I don't even, I'm not even excited about this. I'm actually terrified for you. He's so despondent. And Elisha's like, let's go. Yeah. Can you just see, like, this is not, this is not the model for fathers and sons. And I'm preaching it from a certain perspective because I, I feel the Lord ministering this to us today. But So he gives this and, and, and Elijah then returns. He comes back. And then, well, first he actually, he, uh, he slaughters the, the oxen and has a feast and blesses his family. And, and then he follows Elijah. Oof. There's something about Elisha that I love in this moment. He goes, the assignment I'm saying yes to and I'm ready to follow it, but it cannot come at the compromise of honoring my father and mother. That's deep, but anyway. So he stops. He goes back to honor his father and his mother, knowing that he's now not going to do the thing that they probably thought he was going to do, take over the family business of farming. But he goes back, he honors them, he has a feast with them to celebrate his family, and then he goes to follow Elijah and so I, I just begin to see these things. I'm going, okay, the spirit of fear that wants to lock us down, it wants to rob us of our obedience to the Lord. It wants to rob us of our assignments in Him. It wants to rob us of our legacy. It wants to keep you locked down in the dark night of the soul. And God is wooing us and He's inviting us. And He's saying, let my stillness call you out into the place where you can experience my glory, where you can be face to face with me, where you can receive the instruction of the Lord and be obedient to what I've told you to do. How many of us find ourselves in that place where life has come and that spirit of fear has hit our hearts? And even though we've got stories of the provision of God, the goodness of God, and just how incredible He's been, we still find ourselves in a place of like, it's just me, God, here I am. I'm alone. It failed. And God's like, I mean, He even says to, to uh, Elijah, He's like, by the way, there's 7,000 others. Like, actually, I'm all good. Actually, this thing's, this thing's all right. I got this. My plans and my purposes are prevailing. I, I am not in what you see. You're seeing through a certain lens, through your personal lens of pain. Now, when I look at this, there's so many things that we can pull out of it. But one of the things I'm seeing is Elijah did not know how to deal with pain in his heart. And I think in a lot of ways, the church does not know how to process pain. We don't know how to deal with pain in the soul. Because we expect that the way God is going to fix my pain is by turning the situation to end up the way I thought it was going to end up. If God's not changing the situation for it to be like what I thought it was going to be, it's like I don't know how to deal with pain if that's the outcome. Because can you see, Elijah's on this journey with the Lord. He's, he's been 40 days and 40 nights off of one meal. <laughs> he gets to the mountain He's saying to God, I'm upset. Here's all my frustrations. I'm disappointed, God. This is what I'm facing. And the Lord's drawing him, wooing him, and he's struggling to respond to God. And then the Lord says, I'm going to send you back into the wilderness, and I've given you three things to establish the legacy that I've called you to leave. I love that sometimes God is setting us up and sabotaging us in a beautiful way on the mountain because he wants you out the cave. And he's like, I've actually got instruction for you. I've actually got things I've called you to walk in. I want you to hear me. I want you to walk in freedom. I want you to be free from this, the lies of fear that have crippled you in this moment. And it's interesting because fear attacks legacy, it attacks inheritance, and it attacks multiplication and the reproduction of what you've carried. You get this? And so just because it didn't look like what Elijah expected it to look like doesn't mean God wasn't moving and prevailing. And God was trying to get Elijah's eyes off of what he saw the situation to be and to begin to understand the heart of God. Are you with me? 
I know it's deep. Sometimes in the time of, of a troubled soul where there's fear in our hearts, we don't know how to respond to wind, fire, and shaking. We'd rather just go like, I, I'm just going to stay in the cave. Like, how many of you have been in that season? You've come to church, and Connor gets up there, and he's like, the fire of God is here, and God's going to move, and you're like, get the fire away from me. Like, love you, God. I know you're there. I know you're passing by, but I, my heart is so fragile right now, I can't actually handle that. Right? And we think that the way God answers us is only by wind, fire, and shaking. But a troubled soul, a weary soul, a tired soul, a fearful soul responds to stillness. And it's been this interesting season for me where I felt it again today. And the last couple of months, it's like I'm feeling the Lord in the stillness. I'm really feeling the Lord in the quiet when the noise and the chaos and, and what's so interesting is being up in the mountains, I forgot what silence was like. Because we still have, you know, we live in a very crazy busy city. I love this city so much. But it's so good to get to a place of silence where you just get away and you go, whoa, the deafening sound of silence. Where I'm forced to confront what's in my heart. Where there is no distraction. I'm just, I'm just, I'm here. And I'm here with God on a mountain. Now What? And it all comes to the surface and it's like, okay, Jesus. And then he whispers, what are you doing here, Connor? Lord, here's my frustrations. These are the things I believe. I believe I'm alone. I believe we've failed. I believe, you see it? This is Elijah. It's just me, God. Like, I'm going through something. Nobody else, I don't see anyone else going through this. I think it's just me. Like, I don't, what's happening? And I love that God's answer to that is like, I need you to come out the cave. I need you to get out the cave because in the cave, all you can see is you. You see this? In the dark night of the soul, all you're looking at is what you're afraid of. And you can even be on the mountain of God. Like God has you there. He's holding. He's like, I'm doing something in your heart. And we're still going, I am not moving. I see it like, this is just a certain perspective. I see it like Elijah, God, finally, the stillness is there. He goes, oh, that's God. Oh, wow, oh, he's tugging my heart. Okay, I feel I'm responding to the Lord. And he still like, puts the thing over his face like, he still covers up. He still puts his mantle between him and God. And, and God is so beautiful. He loves Elijah. Can you see this? Can you see how much God loves Elijah? He's not frustrated with Elijah. He's after Elijah's heart. He's just taking him on a journey. He just gave him some nice bread and water that sustained him for 40 days. I want some of that. He, yeah, exactly. He just, he's leading him on this journey. Even though it's in the wilderness, the Lord has not let him go. Even in Elijah's pain, even in Elijah's fears, even in his wrong beliefs and his wrong perspectives, the Lord has not let him go. He led him to the mountain of the Lord in the midst of the wilderness. And even in that cave where he's hiding in a cave, God's still there and he's speaking to him. He's saying, come out the cave. You're on the mountain of God. I don't want you in a cave. I want you to see me. I want you to behold my face. I want you to hear my instruction. Because sometimes what a fearful heart needs is to be led by the perfect leader. Do you know what stress is? I love this. I saw this quote. It rocked me. Do you know what stress is? Stress is when you have decisions to make that you haven't made or you're too afraid to make. Stress is the tension of living in unmade decisions. Most of our anxiety, most of the landing strip for fear in our lives is when we're not being intentional to pursue the instruction of the Lord and be obedient to Him. Stress and anxiety is found in the tension of doing nothing because of fear. And God is saying, I'm calling you out of the cave. I want to speak to your heart. I want to give you instruction. I never asked you to have it all together. Like, I, I guarantee you, the Lord's like with Elijah. He's going, did you bring the fire down? Did you raise the dead on your own? Did you, all these signs, wonders, miracles that you've seen, who do you think that was? That was me. Did I ask you to have it all together or did I ask you just to obey me? When, when, you, when you called down fire, was that not out of obedience to what I asked you to do? 
And so he wants to give Elijah instruction, and Elijah has isolated himself. And here's the thing. In a moment when Elijah needed a friend, he left the servant. Like, if we could look at this situation, there's so much here that we could pull from and just say, in, in the season where you feel you're in the wilderness, number one, don't isolate yourself. It's good to have, like, friends are not going to be the answer for everything, but sometimes you just need someone who stands with you and goes, hey, just want to let you know it's, it's not as bad as you actually are making it out to be right now. Actually, it's going to be okay. Is this landing at all? Is anybody getting something from this? I hope so. I hope so. I am really moved by this. I want to study this more, that God passes by on the mountain. He, he reveals himself, his glory, in wind, in fire, and in shaking. It's God. He's passing by, but he's not in it. For Elijah. Are you seeing this? What he was in for Elijah for Elijah's heart was stillness. So here's the thing about the mountain of the Lord. You don't have to go on holiday to find his mountain. Some of you are on it right now in the midst of your wilderness season and you don't even realize it because you've locked yourself away in a cave. You get it? Some of us are like, I, I just can't do this. I'm not coping. And I'm like, God, I think I, I was on holiday six weeks ago, but I think I need another holiday because I just can't, I'm stressed out. It's like, it doesn't matter what I do. It's just continual stress. Yeah, yeah. You know what I need? Platenburg Bay. <laughs> Cape Town. I, just, yeah, I need the mountains. God, it's, it must be the mountain. This is how we think. We think I've got to escape. I need to, let me escape. If I escape, it'll be better. Let me run to Beersheba. Let me get out of this kingdom, run to Beersheba outside of the kingdom and, and isolate myself for a bit. That's going to do me good. Are you getting this? Oh my word, how many of us do that? It's really difficult. You know what I need to do? Let's get out of this kingdom. Let's get out of Joburg. And let's go to Beersheba, let's go to Cape Town, or let's go to where, where you know, the, the, the beautiful places, the places that are good for my soul. And you know how many times we see this in our lives where we do that, we come back, nothing's changed? I'm just, I mean, I do it, we all do it. I'm so excited for this time away, I, I need this time away, man. Like, it's a weekend away, it's going to be good, we go away, we come back, and then like three days later, you're having that coffee again, you're like, I'm so stressed out, I can't do this, man. I'm it's like, you were on holiday three days ago. See what I'm saying? But the mountain of the Lord, you'll find it in the wilderness. It's Him. And He brings you there. Sometimes you didn't even realize you find yourself on the mountain. You've locked yourself in a cave, but He's going like, I'm calling you out of the cave. I'm calling you by name. What are you doing here? Come, I have instruction for you. Elijah needed to disconnect his identity from his earthly fathers, the lineage of his fathers, the nation of Israel. He needed to disconnect his identity from that, find himself in the voice of God again. That's what God was doing. Can you see this? So that he could actually release and well, first and foremost do what, what God had called him to do for his legacy and then release to Elisha what Elisha was called to, to walk in. And I believe, my honest opinion is, I believe that Elisha's honor of his earthly mom and dad and his spiritual dad was why he walked in a double portion. There's something about honor that God loves. I believe that because he honored his family, but he also honored Elijah where, I mean, he literally was like, I will not take my eyes off you. When he asked for the double portion, and Elijah was like, hey, if you see me going up, you can have it. And Elisha was like, I will not take my eyes off of you. There's this posture of honor. And he walks in a double portion. I hope some of this is, is landing. I said it would be different things. We're just pulling things out of the text. So, so maybe you're in this place right now where uh, I'm going to throw a couple things out. Maybe one, you're in the midst of identity crisis. And God's called you to the mountain. He wants to speak to you. Maybe you're in a place right now where you're exhausted, you're weary, and maybe you have suicidal thoughts. Maybe you're like, I can't do this anymore. And the Lord's like, I want you to take a nap. I want you to have a really nice steak. It's going to be okay. Seriously. Like sometimes the Lord's just going like, you need to just chill out. You got so hyped up in your head. You've made this out way worse than it, than it actually is. Calm down. Have a nap. Have a steak. 
some bread, some water. It's going to be okay. I'm going to sustain you. I want you to trust me. I want you to believe that I will sustain you for the journey. Some of us are in that place this morning. Some of us are locked away out of fear in the dark night of the soul in that cave. And you know God's going like, why are you staying here? What are you doing here? Come stand outside of the cave before me. Some of you know this. I'm talking to your heart. Some of you are like, man, that's me. I know the Lord's calling me out of my cave. He wants to talk to me. He has instruction for me. Some of you are in a place where God is transitioning you out of a season and into a new one. And you're despondent and discouraged because you think that that's the end. But it's not the end. It's the beginning of a new season, a new phase of your life. Some of you might be in a season like Elisha, where you're picking up the mantle that God's called you to walk in. And God's saying, will you do it in a spirit of honor? Will you do it with humility? Will you do it with zeal and hunger? Yes, all those things, but will you honor? Some of you are in a place of loneliness. God, it's just me. I'm alone. And God's like, number one, you left your friends back at Beersheba, and you isolated yourself in the wilderness. You're not alone. You've isolated yourself. They're different right? And then two, there's 7,000 others. You just need to wake up. Some of us are in that place of like, it's just me, God. Woe is me. And he's going, no, it's not just you. Go back, fetch your friend. (laughs) It's not failure to reveal your heart to those that are close to you that you know you can trust and walk with. I'll give you an example just on that one because that one's landing, I can feel. Jesus in Gethsemane, he knows the hour has come, he's about to give his life, he's about to die. And so he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and he takes the 11 to the edge of the garden, leaves most of them and then takes three with him further into the garden to pray with him. And he allows those three for the first time In three and a half years, he allows those three to see Jesus in distress, torment, sorrow, and fear. Can you imagine being the three, like it's the first time they're looking at Jesus and going, you're having a meltdown. Like, how did this happen? We've never seen you like this. We've never seen you so stressed that you're sweating blood, crying out to your father saying, if there's any way you can take this cup from me. And Jesus invites them to see this, to be in that moment with him. I really believe that sometimes, like, look, they failed as friends. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) They fell asleep, right? But the point is, there's something about the heart of God where he's not intimidated by having those that he trusted in that space when he was actually vulnerable. It's not failure to be real. I hope that one's landing. All right. So maybe today there's parts of the story you're grabbing a hold of that. You're like, whoa, that's the season I'm in. That's where I'm at right now. I want to encourage you and just say the story of God, the dream of God, which we're seeing here is that he never lets us go. He never fails us. And he always finishes what he starts. Can you see that? Even in our brokenness, even in our weariness, even in our pain, God will always finish what he starts in you. He's the author and he's the perfecter. He's the finisher of our faith. So our confidence needs to rise. Our hope needs to stir in our hearts to go, God, even in the midst of wilderness seasons, you're so faithful. You hold me and you walk me through this. And so right now, today, I believe the Lord wants to release hope and courage to your heart to be obedient to the instruction of the Lord for this season in your life. And yes, maybe situation and circumstance doesn't look like what you thought it was going to look like. That's not a reason for hopelessness. It just shows that your hope was in the wrong thing. Your hope was in an outcome rather than in God. And when your hope's in Him, He never fails. He's got more for us. Some of us in this room are in different seasons of our life. Some of us are in seasons of discovery, discovering who we are, what God's put inside of us. Some of us are in seasons of building and establishing, investing our lives into the things God's put in us to do. And some of us are in a season of legacy, of giving it all away, and it's terrifying. 
And yet God's going like, can you see that that is what success looks like? And in that beautiful place of giving it all away, the Lord goes, I want to show you there's more to discover. And he takes you back into the place of discovery and building it. Many of us have been stuck in seasons where we, are, we feel crippled, we feel stuck because we haven't taken a hold of the moment that we're in and recognized the instruction of the Lord and just said, okay, Jesus, this is the season I'm in. This is how I'm going to be obedient. I'm, I'm walking in that. And I know that what you have next is so beautiful and so powerful. I'll just say this one more time. Some of us are also in moments where you're in that high-paced, stressful work situation, whatever it is you're going through, and the thoughts, fears attacking your mind. Things are coming at your, your heart. And this is what the Lord's saying. He's like, take a nap. <laughs> Have some food. I'm going to sustain you for the journey. The journey is too great for you on your own, but I'll sustain you. Get up and eat. That's okay. Like, I love this about Jesus. He's like, I got you. Let's have a nap. Let's have some food. Now let's get up. Let's keep going. I got you. Some of us are in a season of just enduring. But I want to make sure as 24-7 that we do not stay in a place of being a victim. Because most of the time we're a victim of our own thoughts. We're a victim of the lies we've believed. A lot of it might not even be true. It's only me, God. No, there's actually 7,000 others, but he's a victim to a lie that's kept him stuck in the cave. So today, I feel like the Lord is bringing freedom to our hearts. He wants to minister to us and say, 24-7, as a family, I'm calling you to obedience. Not your own strength, not your own obedience. I'm empowering you and enabling you to walk in what I've called you to walk in. Because God's anointed this house to have influence in this city and in the nations. And the way he's done that is by anointing you anointing your heart. He's got instruction for you today. You get this? Some of us looking at this story, some of us are journeying anxiety and depression and God's saying, I want to call you out of that cave. And he's ministering to us in the stillness today. So will you stand with me this morning? Is everyone okay? I know it's weighty. We're just going to do one quick response. Well, it might be quick. I don't know. All I want you to do is wherever, whatever's landed in your heart this morning on this message, in a place of stillness, we're just going to respond to Him. So in your heart, as the Lord's whispering to your heart in stillness, just respond. Just say yes. You don't have to put your assignment over your face. You don't have to hide. You don't have to stay in the cave. Just come out and be with Him and say, Lord, thank you. My heart's responding to you. And I'm going to follow you. So Holy Spirit, right now, I thank you that in, in the place of stillness, you're ministering to your church because you have divinely set us apart for what you've called us to. From the youngest to the oldest, in every season of life, in every circumstance and situation. Lord, right now, I thank you. Our hope is not in the outcome of circumstance. Our hope is in the living God. You can do whatever you want to do, Lord Jesus. Father, I pray right now for confidence, for hope, for healing. Every bit of anxiety and depression, God, that's kept us stuck in a cave, thank you that today that breaks off of us, that we can come out of the cave and stand before you. Lord, where we have submitted to lies in our minds, where we've become victim of lies, God, thank you that right now you heal our minds, that we will not become victims to the lies of the enemy, but that we will truly walk in what you've called us to walk in. God, that we will be a people of discovery, of building and establishing, and of leaving legacy everywhere that we go. Thank you that you're going to multiply emotional, spiritual, mental health in the church again. That you are going to bring healing, wholeness, and health to 24-7 church and to all those in our city. God, would you make the church in Johannesburg a shining lampstand in this city? Would you bring freedom right now? And so I release 
the gentle breeze of Jesus, the whisper of God, the stillness of heaven over every heart and mind and every emotion. Thank you, God. Bring healing right now. Thank you. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, I release people from the strain of performance, God. Thank you, God, that that burden just lifts right now. I just release sonship into every heart, sons and daughters established in their identity. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are raising up sons and daughters, fathers and mothers that will carry the kingdom of heaven, that will carry a model and an example that will begin to reproduce the heart of the Father on the earth. Thank you for wholeness over the church, God. And lastly, Holy Spirit, I ask that every person that leaves this room, though this word is tender, I pray that it would begin to bring the life of God in our hearts. That it would begin to stir us up to respond to the fullness of your gospel in the seasons that we're in. Thank you for the finished work of Jesus. Thank you for the hope of the gospel in our hearts. Thank you for the story of God. Thank you for your faithfulness to every single person in this room. You're faithful to finish what you start in every heart and in every life. You're the author, you're the finisher, and you're the perfecter of our faith. We rest in you, Jesus, and we allow you to do your work in our hearts. We bless you, we receive you, and we honor you. And I ask, Lord, that you would take this word and begin to minister to, it, minister to us, uh, even after this service and the rest of today and in this week, that you'd begin to call us to a place of responding to you, Soften us, tenderize us, mark us, Holy Spirit. We love you. We worship you today. We worship you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.